It's great to be with you on this uh, post-Thanksgiving Sunday. It's always a fun time for me to come down and see what's going on at Franklin. I love being here and love seeing you. Well, we continue in our exposition of the Gospel of Mark following the servant king, how Jesus' life redefines our own. And as Joe read this passage, we have two stories today we're going to look at in two different segments of what Luke, um, Mark continues to unfold. And let me begin this way with, with the idea, the overarching idea that human intellect, human ability, human assessment, uh, human conclusion will always reject Jesus. A human logic, human experience, training, our view of life, our worldview always is going to end up rejecting the person and work of Jesus Christ. At best, those will contribute to some view of Jesus that is not the view that the Bible explains. So part of our challenge is how do we understand this? And we all come from somewhere. We all come from a place maybe you, like me, rejected Christ for a long time. Maybe you're still rejecting Christ right now. And that's okay. I'm not mad at you. I'm not upset if you don't believe the way or what I believe. But when we are confronted with the personal work of Jesus, we have to look at it carefully and not dismissively. We have to think critically about what we believe and why we believe certain things. Now, if you grew up in a toxic environment, maybe you were over-religious, uh, maybe you were church, maybe you were drugged to church and youth group and youth functions and you had to go midweek and all those kind of things. Maybe you had to do some pretty rigorous things. Maybe there was a lot of rule and regulation in your home. That toxic religious environment can make many people reject God. And it's very understandable for those of us who came out of that kind of background. Or perhaps you consider yourself progressive in your thinking. This is very common today. We're inclusive. We're loving. We're, we're not intolerant. We're very gracious and open to all kinds of people and all kinds of faith and all kinds of preferential views. And that progressive nature is going to move away from something being right or wrong. It has to. You, you can't hold to all these open ideas and believe there's some right or wrong because that will be an internal conflict. So at those point you might reject Christianity or reject the personal work of Jesus. Perhaps your views are shaped by the populace more than by history. Social media is a wonderful thing. I love technology and I have a total love-hate with social media. I love it when, it's, when it works. I hate it when it works. Social media is a plague and just because a hashtag develops or something trends and hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people will jump on a topic, what it says of our culture is that I want my voice heard. You can't tell me something just because you're a person in authority or a person with a microphone or a person behind a camera. You can't tell me anything, and I get to tell you back. And that's a powerful weapon. It's a powerful medium. Uh, not long ago, I was invited. One of our members has a college, class, a college program where he takes kids for a semester, and he teaches them uh, audio engineering, uh, songwriting, some other things, and it's a pretty cool system. And he asked me to come to his class. So I said, sure, what should I prepare? Oh, don't prepare, just come. Well, I should have been afraid at that invitation. But I went and sat on a stool, and, and for an hour, he grilled me with really hard questions. We watched videos and, and music videos that I didn't know the band, 1975. I'm a fool, I'm sorry. I didn't know. We watched this music video and analyzed the lyrics, and we listened to things, and we, we went through survey. I mean, it was a boom, 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 boom for an hour. I came out exhausted. And he told me afterwards, he said, uh, I've had to entirely change the way I have taught. Three years ago, I started doing this. 
because you can't just stand up and teach college students anymore. They don't care. The number one hashtag trending in college circles, not universally, but a, uh, a top lister, is TLDR. Hashtag TLDR. I'd never heard this. Too long, didn't read. Tells you a lot. We had to read books and write papers. We had to read abstracts and chronicles. We had to have 30 sources for a paper. TLDR. Too long, didn't read. And when you think of the way social media goes through our feed and how quickly uh, I'm finding in our current small group, just in the last two years, they don't use email anymore. Everything's text. And how things truncate and change and quicker and quicker and smaller and faster. Think about that from a theological perspective. It's pretty easy to reject God. It's pretty easy to reject this all-powerful truth to whom we must show his rightful authority in our lives. So progressive trends, social media trends, populist trends. Maybe you view this as just another book. In fact, an old, hard, contradictory book. And I get that. I've been studying it now north of 40 years, and it's still hard. I get that. And if it's too long, didn't read, then this book's going to be like Toynbee. You're just not going to read it. War and Peace, you're never going to open it. It's too much. Maybe, and I would say this is the last reason we might reject Jesus, is because of Christians. Sometimes Christians are our worst poster children. Uh, you don't put, you know, if you, want to, uh, if you want someone to adopt a pet, you use a really meaningful Sarah McLaughlin song, and you have little pets behind little cages that need homes, right? You don't have like the, the ugliest dog or cat in the universe and say, adopt this ugly mutt who's probably going to live four years and be sick all the time. So sometimes we have those, those are our Christian poster children. And we all know some people like that, don't we? Now, don't, don't admit it, but we all do. I wish they wouldn't tell people they're Christians. They're not very good PR for us. Lots of reasons one might reject Christ. I could go on a long time on that, but my question to you is whether you have not yet thought deeply about this person called Jesus, or whether in your own story, in your family members, people have rejected Christ, maybe these two stories we're going to look at might help us understand a little bit why people reject Christ and what he's up to. Well, as Joe Levitt read so wonderfully, Mark chapter 6, the first few verses talk about astonishment. They're astonished at what Jesus does, but they, that does not mean they believe him. Astonishment does not mean acceptance. Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and the disciples followed him. Mark simply notes the movement as he does in this short, truncated gospel. He very quickly moves from the area of Capernaum to his hometown, Nazareth. When Sabbath had come... now. In, in the first century, it was very common for a visiting rabbi, as he would travel from village to village, to be invited in to speak at that synagogue. So if the synagogues were small, maybe 200 people at most in, this, in antiquity. And so when you're in the synagogue setting, they know, oh, that's Rabbi so-and-so, we'll come up. If you've ever been to an African-American church um, and a guest preacher is there, even if he's just attending, it's very common to say, uh, Brother Michael, come up and give a word of greeting. Now, I have a number of African-American friends who have churches in Chicago and D.C. area, and I would be invited to speak sometimes, invited to attend something. Sometimes I would just go to visit. And when you're as white as I am and you go to an all-African-American church, you tend to stick out anyway. Even if you sit on the back row, you, you stick out. And uh, so, Brother Easley, come give a word of greeting. And you just, I just came to come to church. No, come give a word, which is code for give us a little really great sermon. 
You don't just say greetings from Nashville. You're expected to say something of substance. I'll never forget the first time this occurred. And I know I was going to teach. And I was invited and I'm, I'm preaching away. And there's a woman right here on the front row. And she's fanning herself going, help him, Jesus, help him. Help him, Jesus, help him. It's burned in my memory. It will never go away. I have cold sweats thinking about that. All that digression. It was not uncommon for a visiting rabbi to be invited to give a word to open the scroll and teach it. And that's precisely what Jesus does. Now his listeners are astonished. It says many listeners were astonished. Astonishment does not mean they embraced him. In fact, the word can almost mean something like they don't believe him. It's used in Mark 1036 when the disciples hear Jesus say some really strong things and they say to him who then can be saved same word how can anybody be saved then so that's the sense in fact what these five questions I'm going to distill out of this passage are really agitated questions they're not asking them for information they're upset they're astonished at what he's just said and done and they rapid fire. Now I'm going to group this. It's, it's a run-on sentence. It's like a staccato da, 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 of questions. They're firing in very quickly. I'm going to tease it out in five questions. The first one is, where did this man get these things? What's the source of his teaching? We've talked about this before, but as a reminder, if you are, have any law background or know, know a little about the legal system, it's case law. You don't just go to court and say, I believe my, uh, my uh, client is innocent because it's reading, therefore believe me. You have to show precedence. You have to use case law. You have to use evidential law. It's a process of things that were proven in the past to be right or wrong are then marshaled forth. See, it's still wrong today. It's still right today. And that's called case law. That's how you develop a strategy to prove something. That's rabbinic teaching. You never stood up and said, I think the passage means, or in my study, I've concluded you cite Gamaliel or Hillel or other rabbis in your teaching. So Jesus is teaching as one with authority. And they go, where did he get this? What's his source? He's not teaching like rabbis were familiar with. Secondly, what is this wisdom given to him? What's his source, number one? Secondly, what's his wisdom? Where did he get it from? And this question is a little more delicate in the way they ask it. But what they're asking is, is this from God or from Satan? Because wisdom only has two sources. Either it's God's wisdom or it's not God's wisdom. If it's not God's wisdom, then therefore it's Satan's wisdom. And that's very binary in the way that you looked at these things. John 9 is my favorite character in all Scripture. And the man born blind and Christ, he doesn't just heal him. He creates eyes because he's congenitally blind. So this is a big deal if it really happened. So in the whole inquisition from John 9 onward, finally the, the Jews, the rabbis say to the blind man, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. We don't know where his source is. We don't know where his wisdom is. And later the Jews will say he's from Beelzebub because they can't embrace the thought that maybe this is God's wisdom coming through this man Jesus because they then have to worship Jesus. And so it's binary for them. Either he's of God or he's not. There's no gray area. The third question is implied, where did he get the ability to do such miracles that are performed by his hands? Now this heightens the tension because the way Mark records it, they're not disputing the miracles. They're not saying he really didn't do those things. They can't deny it. The Gerasenes, 
the, uh, the, the, the uh, Tabitha, walking on the water, stilling the storm, uh, all the miracles. They can't deny them. They're undeniable. Too many witnesses. So they don't dispute the veracity of the miracles. They just ask, by what power? Where does he get this ability to do these? The fourth question, is this not the carpenter? Now, this phrase is probably derogatory. He's a local boy. We knew him when. He's in his hometown where he's best known. Now, the word carpenter is only found here and in Matthew 13, 55. It's the word tecton. And because it's translated carpenter, we have all these images in children's books of Jesus and his father Joseph building furniture. Right? We've all seen those pictures. And the word can mean a worker in wood. But in recent scholarship, I said recent, 120 years, recent scholarship, the word tecton probably means a stone worker, which is much more romantic and theologically intriguing. Because he's born and laid in not a wood manger, a stone-hewn feeding trough. He's the cornerstone that the builders rejected, and he's buried in a tomb of stone, which everyone was. But the stone imagery follows him through his whole life. He's the stone they stumble upon. And when you go to Israel, you will see there aren't forests, but there's plenty of stone. So a, probably a better way to look at that word is that Jesus was a stonemason. Now, I know that changed your life, but that's all for free. <laughs> the fifth question, son of Mary. Now, in this culture, uh, you never refer to a son as a son of the mother. Uh, not to be too indelicate, but this is like saying he's a son of a... That was the implication. Because they knew Mary's past. They knew she married an older man. And the fact that the list of names follows, only two of which we know anything about, siblings, uh, more than likely, some believe Joseph was married before, had children, his wife died, he remarries a woman. Others believe that Joseph married, and after Jesus was born, then of course they had Mary and Joseph had siblings. Either way, we've got these siblings to deal with. James uh, is the only one, and, um, and Judas, a.k.a. Uh, Jude, who both wrote, epistles and were also leaders in the church is this the son of mary it's it's an incendiary comment you referred to him as the son of his father ben amin the son of amin you never used the mother's name that was an insult so this staccato of questions they're challenging his authority they come rapid fire they're agitated they're reject they're amazed but they're rejecting him we know this guy they took offense at him. It's a strong term. Jesus became a trap to them. The question relates to authority, wisdom, and power, to sum it up. Where does he get this authority? Where does he get this wisdom? And where does his power come from? Now think back on Jesus' life. The moment he's born, Herod is threatened by his potential power and authority. Herod wants to kill him. And when he hangs on the cross dying, the one criminal accuses Jesus and says, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us also. Where's your authority? Where's your power? Do something about our situation. Rich irony in that phrase, save yourself and us. What's he doing by dying? He's making the way to save mankind. So from the moment he's born to the moment he's crucified, people are going to challenge his power, his authority, and his wisdom. And it's the same today. People will challenge his power, his authority. Who is this Jesus? How do you know? Why do you believe in him? Aren't all roads, don't all lead to God? If you're a good Muslim, a good Jew, a good Buddhist, a good Hindu, a good secular person, a coexist bumper sticker user, sorry if you have one in your car, all roads lead to heaven. 
people reject Jesus today for the same reasons they did in the first century. Where does his wisdom come from? Where does his power come from? Where does his authority come from? Why do we think he's God? And that is the most important question. If you dismiss his divinity, there's nothing left. If he's not the God man, close the book and go home and have a great life. If he's just another teacher, you're wasting your time and money being at fellowship. If he's just another religious follower, a guy you should follow, I would encourage you to find a better religion. This is a dead end if he's not divinity. But if he's divine, if he does have wisdom, power, and authority, then it would do us all well to pay close attention. Well, Jesus answers their rejection with a proverb that we know too well. A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. Any of us who've gone back, have you gone on a family vacation, maybe over Thanksgiving, and relatives came in town and go, oh, you're so big, I used to change your diapers. And all of a sudden you feel like a little kid, don't you? He's <laughs> kind of shrunk down. Too much information. You know, I don't want to know this. And, we all, and they grab you by the cheek. I remember you when you were a little itty bitty kid. I knew your parents before they were married. And all of a sudden you feel like you're three years old again, right? Happened to you? That's implicit what's going on here. And then it says he could do no miracle there. Now, he's rejected by his own people. They have the staccato of challenges to his power, authority, and his wisdom. And his response is, I'm not going to perform for you. It doesn't mean Jesus was unable to perform miracles. It means he did not perform. He's not going to do this in an unbelieving, antagonistic audience that is his hometown. Because they knew him best. Jesus wondered, verse 6, at their unbelief. Intriguing phrase, only found here and in, Mark, uh, in, in Matthew chapter 8. He wondered at their unbelief. The God-man, we're meant to see fully God, fully man, going to the place that they knew him best, and they reject him outright immediately. They dismiss him, they thought they knew him, and because they thought they knew him, they completely missed him. Astonishingly, they can't see beyond their own assumptions. What were your assumptions? What were the things that made you doubt He's the Christ. Maybe you still doubt. That's fine. Maybe you still reject. That's okay. What are the things that make us reject and doubt and not believe he's this Jesus? Is it the way we were raised? Is it toxicity? Is it we're progressive? We think we know better. The Bible's full of contradictions. Fill in the blank. What are the things that keep us from embracing the person? You can be amazed at Jesus. He was a cool guy. He was an amazing teacher. If you dismiss his divinity, you reject him completely. Either he's the God-man or he's not. Even the Jews understood that. The last part of verse 6, he was going around the villages, moves him away from Nazareth. And this is a tragic part of the record. He never returned to Nazareth insofar as the gospel records record. And as important as his hometown would be, I find it striking if they had come to Christ in a mass way, we'd have heard about it perhaps in the gospels. The more ironic part of it is where is he doing this? In the synagogue. The word of God came to the synagogue and opened the scroll of God and read the word of God and expounded the word of God and they reject him. The irony just continues to get rich and deep. He comes to open the word. He is the word. They reject not only the word he read, but they reject the word that he is. Well, this parallel in Mark's big gospel is just like Nazareth rejected Jesus, the Jew rejected Jesus. That's the high level of what Mark is teaching us. Well, let's look, not only did the apostles, not only did the, the group reject him, now the apostles are sent out 
on a mission. And this is the second part of the story we're going to look at. Let's reread it. Verse 7, he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but wear sandals. And do not put on two tunics. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off your soles of your feet for a testimony against them. They went out and preached the men should repent. They were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. This is the third main section of the Gospel of Mark. Now it changes the narrative quite a bit. The twelve are apostles, aposteloa, and it's a word play. The apostles are the apostled. The sent are sent out in pairs. Deuteronomy 19.15 underscored that you needed two witnesses to know if something was true. And so we're seeing this uh, expanded in Christ's mission. It just makes common sense, too. They're going to do better off with somebody that they're with, knocking on doors, so to speak, than if they were by themselves alone. Three items underscore their dependence on Him. They're going on a journey. They're going to take nothing with them except what's on their back. Now, when you travel, when you go somewhere, um, when we go abroad, we go to Israel, people are limited to 50 pounds for a carry-on, uh, for a check bag, and then you have a carry-on and then a briefcase or a purse. And I'm always amazed how people measure that carry-on and a briefcase or a purse. Uh, you, you know well-seasoned travelers who know how to travel light and well, and they got one small bag and they're on and off a plane, and you know people that don't travel much, and they're getting on the on board with, not, not a carry-on, it's like a huge, it's like Jabba the Hutt they're bringing on the plane. You're not going to fit Jabba the Hutt in that overhead, I promise you. And you're going to back up everybody on the plane, no matter what the flight attendant's saying. They're, they're just, you know. Why do we take so much stuff with us? There's security in that stuff. I mean, I've got to have 17 pairs of shoes for three weeks. I, I can't just take two. I can't just take one set of changes each day. I can't wear that twice. It's security, and, and, and not being disrespectful to the women in the group, but you do carry a few accoutrements with you. Uh, my wife, I call her head electric. She has to have all these apparatus to make her hair and face what it's supposed to be. They all have to plug in at some level, so we've got to have all these cords and things. It's like, that's a separate check bag right there, plus the makeup bag. My word, I could put a week's lunch in there, you know? But that's the way we are. It's security, and that's stuff. Some men are that way, too. But then when you get there, what happens? You leave it behind and take a little less when you go on the day trip. And if you go a little further, you find yourself with, and if you're, if you're really traveling light and you're back at the hotel, you got all your stuff, what do you have in your back pocket? Your passport and a credit card. Because if everything else falls out, the bottom falls out, I got my credit card and my ID and I can get out of country, I can buy a meal, I can buy a hotel room, I can take care of myself. Christ says, leave it all behind. I'm going to send you out in twos. Just take what you got on your backs. Don't even put the credit card. Don't put money in your belt. Just go. Because you're going to trust me. What you're going to do is because of my provision, not yours. And this is where they're going to learn their mission as he empowers them to do it. Their ability is completely connected to his authority. They'd seen him cast out demons. They'd heard him teach. They'd seen him heal. They'd seen all sorts of things. They'd seen him confront the Pharisees and scribes. They saw him anoint. They saw him raise. They saw him walk. They saw him calm. 
Now you go do the same things. You're going to trust me. Shake off the dust is comparative to the, the Jews who traveled through Gentile territory. And when they got out of the town, they would shake the dust of the unclean Gentiles off their clothes. It was an image very common for the Jew in the first century. And the idea is if you reject the message of Christ, the messenger of Christ, we're rejecting you. He's just been rejected from his hometown. Now they're going to experience that. We don't get great detail in Mark. We're going to experience that. They're going to also be rejected as they go out and knock on certain doors. The mission of empowering by authority that Jesus gives them is you can do nothing on your own. J.J. said it earlier when he talked about we should be grateful because God has given us everything. You know, any ability you and I have belongs to him. I'm, I'm, I'm here to break it to you. You're not that good. I'm not that good. Nobody's that good. If we have anything good to offer, it's because he's been kind to give it to us. And we're to use it. And we can use it well or we can use it poorly. Robbie Zacharias says, A man rejects God neither because of intellectual demand or because of the scarcity of evidence. Let me read it again. A man rejects God neither because of intellectual demand. It's too hard, too complicated. I don't like it nor because of the scarcity of evidence. There's not enough for me to believe. He says that's not why people reject God. He continues, a man rejects God because of a moral resistance that refuses to admit his need for God. It's not because we don't have enough evidence. It's not because we're not smart enough to embrace it. It's not because of any other reason. It's just that we don't, we don't need it. Or to put it real simply, it's pride. I know better. I know more. My experience has taught me this. A populace has taught me that. My liberal views or my views of, forget liberal and conservative, my views of the culture have shaped who I am today and the culture's right. And Michael, you and your Bible are wrong. There's lots of reasons we reject. But it comes down to, is he the God man? He went into his own, his own knew him not. And so he's going to send his disciples, who are his own, out to other people. And that message will continue to spread around the world. Rejecting Christ is not based on intellect. It's not based on reason. It's not based on an accumulation of studied scholarship in your life and mine. Rejection of Christ is based on pride. Because I'm not willing to acknowledge, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I am a sinner. Maybe there is a bigger need than I comprehend. Maybe there is a Savior. Maybe, just maybe, Jesus is the God-man. Forget disproving all the other religions and ologies and philosophies. Like, Just who is this God? Who is this Jesus? Is he who he says he is? Can he do what he said he has done? You see, I find it striking that he came to die that we might live. But you and I are living as though we're going to die. I wrote something recently for an article on decades and looking at our life through decades and how that when you're in your 20s and 30s, uh, it's such an important time. You're making lifelong decisions. When you're going to have, are you get married? Are you going to have children? Are you both going to work? And all these things have changed so rapidly in my lifetime. And watching how 20s and 30s navigate, it's, just, it's, it's a different world, different culture. It's not wrong, it's just different. And then when you hit your 40s, you're kind of strapped in. Because you probably got kids and you probably got a mortgage and you probably got some obligations and you got a job. Maybe it's not the end all job, but you're kind of strapped in because you got to pay the bills and take care of things. And when you, if you live to be 50, <laughs> when you get to 50, you start thinking, you know, I, I can sort of see an end. It gets a little scary 
because the decades start collapsing and you know you're at that halfway point and you hit your 50s and all of a sudden you're going, well, um, wow. And then late 50s, hopefully you get a little courage. And you go, hey, this is pretty good. Empty nest is the, is the brass ring, baby. Empty nest is great. And then you sort of redefine. You're not strapped to raising your kids. The colleges are done with. So forth. You're kind of on your own now. You and your wife kind of go, hey, I used to know you. And you kind of reconnect in life and start doing things together. And I'll be 60 here real shortly. I know some of you are older than that. You're wiser than me. Um, but as I come up to 60, it was a real interesting time for me to re-engage. Go, Michael, don't lean back. Get back in the game. 100 miles an hour. And I said some really overly crazy ambitious goals for myself for the next decade. I probably won't hit them, all of them, but I'm, I'm going to set them out there and say, I'm not going to sit on my laurels as so many of my peers do and wait for retirement. But as I articulate all this, I keep burying friends. Everywhere I look, I get a phone call. Someone else passed away. I got to go bury a friend. You know, it's another encouraging Michael Easley sermon. It stinks. It's horrible. I hate it. I don't make light of it. But if he was born to die, that we might live, why are we living as though we're going to die? We just lit the candle of hope. We're going to commemorate Lord's table. Ask the men and women to start distributing the elements. Ask the band to come out and lead us. But this is the ultimate commemoration of why we're here, not to live these decades of all this anxiety and energy and worry. We want to be smart as we live, no question. We're going to embrace horrible things, no question. We're going to embrace good things. But we're not going from the land of the living to the land of the dying. We're going from the land of the dying to the land of the living. It's a great way to both end and remember a year, so... Band, I'm going to ask you one more time. If you're uh, not drinking coffee back there, <laughs> if they'll come back out. You guys can go, go ahead and start distributing the elements. You're going to hold two elements together. You're going to hold a wafer and some juice. And these are both elements we hold to a commemoration view that these elements remind us of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus in our place on our behalf instead of us. I want to read a little different passage than normally. We usually look at 1 Corinthians, but I want to read from Hebrews chapter 10 while the elements are being distributed. By this we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for all sins, for all time. Having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by the one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. He started out, listen, by this we have been sanctified through the offering of of the body of Jesus Christ. And then he returns to that. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. If you're a believer in Christ, you are being sanctified. And he looks at you perfect. Not because you're good, but because he was perfect. 
He sets your sin aside on Calvary, and he says, I died for him. I died for her. I love him. I love her. I'm not mad. I'm not pacing heaven's floor in regret. I love them. Perfect love. And the Holy Spirit also testifies for us, saying, This is the covenant that I will make them. In those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. And he says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there's forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering for sin. You have been forgiven completely, fully, all that you have done, all that you're doing, and amazingly, all that you will do. That's no greater love. Can't be measured. What great hope to find. You're not going from the land of the living to the land of the dying. He was born to die that you might live. So we die because we're going to live. Go ahead and partake of the elements as you please.